Welcome to Unwrapped, a podcast where we pull back the conversation on coffee and chocolate with Sunita from The Chocolate Garage and Brian from Abandoned Coffee in Quill's Coffee. I was thinking as I was uh, walking home to come and chat with you, maybe it would be good to start with something, some chocolate that you're really excited about right now. Okay. Does that catch you really off guard? Should I start? <laughs> no, I can I can start as well. So just a couple of weeks ago, we had, you had mentioned this before, and it took me a while to get around to trying it, and I didn't try it with the tequila that you mentioned, but you had mentioned the Fortaleza Anejo tequila, and the boss was a great combination. And I had a boss bar, but I was waiting for the right time to get into it. And a couple of weeks ago, I did that, and that was my first time having that bar, even though I've had a lot of other Patrick bars, and I'm kind of addicted to that right now. So I don't know if that's the same combination that he does in in the sweet and sassy, just with nib or not, or what, but there's something about the flavor. Now, the bar that I currently got into, it might there might be another batch since then, so I'm not sure if the blend has changed, but whatever bar I have, I currently am, I like that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a chocolate garage exclusive, yes? Yes, it is. Yeah. So this is actually, it's probably, maybe it is the, it's kind of an iconic bar, I guess, in a sense. And there's a great story behind that. And did you try it with the with the tequila that you had? You had gotten a different Añejo, I think you mentioned? Yeah, I just tried it with a margarita. I didn't, I didn't do it. With, I, I feel like I tried it with the tequila before. And I don't know if the Fortaleza is supposed to be a, a little less... Um, What's the white word? Spiced, maybe? I don't know. I'd have to go back and visit it. But um, what I had, it it wasn't my favorite combo. It didn't work. Not like an, another not like another chocolate may have, but mm. that's okay. Yeah, well, the the, 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 the Fortaleza in particular, that Añejo, um, and, and it, of course, varies batch to batch. And Fortaleza is probably the tequila, the, the brand of tequila that I've tried the most in part because... It is, um, it's one that I recommend to do at tastings. When I go out and do team buildings and they want to do beverage pairings, I will recommend that specific tequila, but also because it's kind of a favorite amongst folks at the Chocolate Garage. And so Wednesday evenings when we're open is a night where people can come in and buy chocolate, but also um, people bring in things to share to pair with the chocolate. And there's um, one person in particular who didn't introduce me to the tequila, but we had this tremendous connection around the tequila um, when he first stepped into the garage and was was going on about how delicious chocolate was I said oh you have to try this bar the boss with this bottle and I pulled from this section of my um, my uh, I don't know what you call it. it was this old piece of furniture that I had in the past in the garage where I stored all the jars full of samples and there was a little section where you tucked the trays it was an old built-in bar from a house in the Presidio in San Francisco and I had um, I had bought it and put it into the garage so I pulled out on a Saturday morning like the little tiny leftover in the bottle that I had and I was like this with this bar is amazing and the crazy thing is that this guy actually knew the guy who made this tequila and regularly did events with him and and so it was just this kind of wild connection but for that reason he often will bring in the three he'll bring in the the silver the reposado and the añejo and so we're always tasting it in different batches and i've been really surprised that sometimes the silver because typically as it's more aged it tends to be a little more mellow and have more you know um 
accessible flavors or have less power and less sort of like, oh my gosh, I need some lime and salt to handle that little bit of tequila I just had. And I've been surprised to see that some the silver has been really, really sometimes better than the Añejo. So all that to say that different batches are different in the tequilas, but the Añejo, as I love it with the boss, itself has all these kind of butterscotchy notes and vanilla and kind of roundness to it. And the boss, as you know, is um, it's a bar that has caramel notes naturally as well. The way that Alan blends those beans and adds a little salt and milk, it kind of has these sort of natural caramel notes. Um, and so the two of them together with their caramel and their butterscotch and then the, the saltiness really come together beautifully. Um, so that's I think it's probably my all-time favorite pairing and a surprising one too. You know, when you tell people aged tequilas, you know, sipping tequilas and chocolate, it's not the first thing people think of when they think of pairing chocolate. They think of wine and chocolate, which can work. Um, and we often, often are asked to to pair wine with chocolate and we agree to do it, but we also point out that there's easier pairings, more natural pairings, um, especially when you don't know the wine you're dealing with. It's harder to find the right chocolate to go with that wine without actually doing the work. I put work in quotes there because it's really fun work and research right. that we do. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So the the boss bar has changed a little over the years, as I mentioned to you, and and it actually leads us into um, some of what we were hoping to talk about today around the model of the chocolate garage. So early, early on when I started, I've always done tastings, um, which means, you know, in the garage, we would have chocolate available to taste, but also we go out and do formal tastings that are usually 90 minutes to two hours, um, where we do some education, we get people understanding what is different about this chocolate, understanding fermentation occurs and drying and that that really makes or breaks a cacao. And um, and so we go into that and then we do an applied version where people get to, get to take what they've learned and try to taste chocolate. And we often will do the plain darks blind. So, um, so they're trying to figure out which is which and notice that they do have the ability to tell the difference between these chocolates. Um, and of course, I tap into the competitive nature and sort of type A personality of Silicon Valley where people get very into getting it all right and figuring it out. Um, so at those tastings early, early on, I would have this bar that I um, that I was carrying at the time. And it was a bar by Michel Cruzel. And it was called Eclat de Caramel au Beurre Salé. That was the French word, so the French name of it. So, you know, splashes or explosions of um, salted butter caramel. And it was this delicious, comforting, like hits all those. It was very sweet, but um, just a really accessible bar. And so it was often, and part of the tastings was you get to not only play the game of guessing which is which, but you choose your favorite and you take it home. That was part of the model and still is part of the way that we do tastings. Everyone chooses their favorite. And so this, more often than not, you know, 50% of the people would choose this bar. They just loved it. And it was just one of those go-to comfort zone kind of bars. And over time, I was like, you know, gosh, you know, I really want to be thoughtful about ingredients and where the beans are coming from and having transparency. And it was not going to be possible to get to the bottom of where the beans were from in that bar. And when you looked at the ingredient list, you know, it was delicious chocolate, but, you know, there's glucose syrup or there was just things in it that I, that weren't ideal and so I more and more started to feel like I need, I want I want to reproduce this but I don't I want it to be done in a in a happier way in a happy chocolate kind of way with really good ingredients so I asked Alan um, if he would make us this bar and I said this is what I want in the bar you know I want the crunchy toffee caramel part and I want the comforting milk and the salt is really helpful too and so I described what it 
what it was like that I wanted to recreate. And he did various iterations and in the end concluded that when you don't have the scale of a Cluizel, it's harder to get inclusions in your bar and deposit them through your machine as such, like within the bar, and it's easier to sprinkle things on the back. So it's it's much harder to incorporate everything into the bar as a smaller maker. And so even though it's more work, that's typically what smaller makers do. And so Alan um, tried doing, you know, broken up bits of toffee and sprinkling it on the back, and there's issues of moisture, and over time it doesn't stay as fresh in the wrapper. And so, you know, long, long process, to get to the point where he decided, you know, I'm going to bring in the crunch through nibs and I'm going to take that element of like toffee butterscotch yumminess and put it in the bar itself. So he kind of, you know, rearranged the bar, but it had the same sort of effect. It's this comforting milk chocolate with caramel notes and there's crunch, but it's actual nibs, which is actually even better than the Cluizel bar because it becomes this this like stepping stone from ooh comforting milk but here you are crunching on a nib and so some part of your mouth is getting access to plain clean cacao just as it is and in a safe way like you know in a safe way in that you're like ooh yummy yummy milk sweet comforting all that so that was sort of the the, the origin of the bar and the the name of it <laughs> At the time, uh, Patrick was a bigger company, Patrick Chocolate, and he had um, a few folks working with him. And informally, as they were developing this bar, the way they would refer to it was, as they were tasting it and it was evolving, um, they started referring to it as the boss because it was just such an awesome bar. Um, and so he kept referring to it that way on the phone as they were developing it and back and forth and then sending us versions. And it just felt right in the end to call it the boss in the end. Um, and as you mentioned, Sweet and Sassy came after that. Um, so Alan continued, like started out by making this bar as a collaboration with the Chocolate Garage. And um, back in the day when that package had his face on it, it was actually co-branded Chocolate Garage and Patrick Chocolate. And then uh, still only makes it for the Chocolate Garage, but has rolled out um, Sweet and Sassy, which is also delicious. It's basically the boss minus the nibs. Um, and yeah, so that's that's the story behind that bar. I saw I was at Chocopolis this weekend in Seattle and I saw the Sweet and Sassy and as I was reading it, I, it looked it looked familiar, but I kept thinking to myself in my head, well, I'm not going to get the full experience though without the nib because that's one of the best parts because they're, they're, what's neat about the nib here compared to some other bars, even in, you would have to let me know if the nib in this bar are different than the nib and the inimitable bar because it seems like they're a little cleaner or a little bit sweeter than what I might find in the inimitable bar, but it might be the same. Interesting. No, it is a different nib. Um, I believe uh, that the nib on the back of the of the boss is now Ghana. It used to be, I believe it used to be Rio Caribe when Alan back then was using Rio Caribe as one of the origins of Venezuelan uh, cacao. And when he stopped using that, he replaced the nibs um, with the Ghanaian nibs. And the inimitable should be all Madagascar. So those should be Madagascan nibs, which in a sense, it makes sense that the Ghana tastes sweeter in a sense that um, Madagascar is more fruity and bright and citrusy and so that might feel a little more sour and less sweet um, than the sort of base chocolate flavors of Ghana. I just used the word chocolate flavors this is one of our first conversations right it was like what's with oh calling chocolate chocolatey gosh. all the time. <laughs> I actually uh. you know what's funny is that um uh, I had some ch I had talked to uh, I was talking to Seneca of Lonohana and he, he had listened to the podcast and he said Absolutely, it's okay to use that term. There are chocolates that are very chocolatey, that are very cocoa flavored. And so it was interesting. I still, you know, um, I don't, I 
I don't know how to, I don't know how to come to conclusion with all of that, but um, there, I definitely hear chocolate makers refer to chocolate as chocolatey sometimes, and and I'm not, I I guess that that maps in some way. I mean, if you think of traditional, anyways, let's not go down that path. Let me tell you what I'm excited about chocolate wise. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Over the years, there have been some really delicious janduya bars, um, either that incorporate um, janduya or praline, like an almond and uh, hazelnut blend in the middle of a bar. So uh, I think François Pralu's original um, bar called the uh, Bar Infernal, which is, you can get it in various different forms, but we used to carry the, the milk and the chocolate, dark chocolate version of the Infernal Bar, which has... Um, uh, either uh, darker milk chocolate on the outside, depending on the bar, and then on the inside, it's that um, blend of uh, hazelnuts and almonds and darker, I think it's always milk chocolate, maybe it's darker milk, I don't remember now, on the inside. And then throughout the middle are whole nuts that are, are stuffed in there as well. And in the milk chocolate version, there's hazelnuts, and in the dark chocolate version, there's almonds. And this is a bar you slice up, and it's just divine. You know, the inside is so soft and wonderful. And I've always been looking for um, a replacement, in a sense, of that bar, um, because it is so delicious, and they do it so well. Um, and yet, sometimes it's hard to access, there's shipping issues, it it comes out of bloom or you know there's just various problems and so I also wanted to get a bar that I knew where all the ingredients were from and so over the years there's been various attempts with Alan of Patrick and um, just a few days ago Arate brought me their version of that bar so we had talked about them doing one um, they got a good food award this year for their janduya bar that I think you've tasted which is a yes yes a dark chocolate janduya with little bits of hazelnut in the bar as well and so the difference between that and this stuffed bar that they made it's also a dark chocolate janduya so the outside covering is um, made of dark chocolate and then the inside is again uh, a, a dark chocolate janduya with little bits in it but it's softer than the bar and so you get that lovely soft texture on the inside that you can't achieve with a bar because it's just not practical and doesn't stay flat and in shape by encasing it with the dark chocolate on the outside and I was realizing um, we tasted it last night I opened up a bar and sliced it up for folks and they were all tasting it and it's so delicious um, what's even nicer about it um, than the Infernal Bar, for example, or even the Soma Bar, which is really delicious. We have their Janduya tube right now that is the same. It's um, it's a dark chocolate on the outside and a stuffing on the inside, and they put whole toasted hazelnuts throughout the middle. Um, there's something a little annoying about cutting through the whole hazelnuts, as wonderful as it is to get a whole hazelnut. Um, it doesn't cut as cleanly where the little chips that are interspersed throughout the, the center, the soft center, um, are just delightful and easier to cut and and more practical in some ways so that's a bar that I'm really excited about and I didn't manage to pair it with what I would pair it with which is probably a scotch um, I think that would be really nice because last night folks brought in someone brought in a white dessert wine a sticky and um, a port and so that's what I ended up drinking with it but it wasn't that's not what I would have chosen as my um, my go-to pairing so that's something I'm really excited about you say that's that's still arte, but it's different than the bar. It is, or yeah. So it it's is. like it's like a stuffed bar. It's like a giant confection. Um, it's mm. probably as long as your hand and um, as thick as 
like three bars thickness, let's say, a regular Arte bar, three, four bars thickness. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so it's this wonderful stuffed bar, and it isn't available yet. It was, these are the test versions that um, David and Leslie brought in and that we test we tasted, um, and they're, they're lovely. So they've got the big, fat, green light to go ahead and get those produced so that we can start carrying them and, and selling them at the Chocolate Garage. I look forward to that. The, the regular bar version quickly became one of my favorites. I'm very addicted to that. So yeah, yeah, it's dangerous a lovely to keep bar. around. I, I like the Brazilian caca- uh, chocolate that's used in there too. It's it's nice compared to some other makers' versions that I've had. I don't know. It's a little jammy or sweeter com- combined with the hazelnut sweetness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was something they worked on. I think originally the first Janduias that they played with that they brought in were with the. I want to say it was the Marañón. It was this other bean that um, I'm not a huge fan of. I find it a difficult bean to work with. Not that I work with it, but once it's been worked with by others and I taste it, I still find it difficult. <laughs> um, and so they switched more to this, like, you know, this fudgier, less fruity, um, less astringent Brazil. And then I feel like we've also done a version of their Janduya where they've gone away altogether from any fruitiness. Um we had sent some to Scott of Dallas Food, and um, oh, I call him Scott DFW. Um, Scott had one of his comments was that a different cacao would have married better with the with the hazelnut. So it's been something that they've been working on and tweaking, and um, it's really fun to to work with David and Leslie. They're really open to. I mean, they come into the garage with their products and and will like do these little tasting um, soirees where people you know come in and get to taste like various origins that they're developing and then give like honest feedback about what they think about the different bars. Um, it's like such a great focus group for for David and Leslie. Um, and it's super fun, obviously, for folks who get to come in and, and um, you know, gift their palates and their, their feedback to Arate. Yeah, and one of their recent newsletters, well, I say recent, it was probably the beginning of the year, though. They've got some exciting origins coming up soon, so we'll anxiously await those as well. Yeah, I'm excited about um, India. I remember a few years ago... Um, Zotter came out I, I think that was the first Indian origin bar that I saw um, and this was a few years ago um, and it looks like they are experimenting with India right now as well and um, so my mom is from Kerala and Kerala is one of the places in India where cacao grows and so I'm, I'm really excited to see these uh, efforts to grow more cacao and even do uh, value add in country so some bean to bar makers in India themselves who are taking Kerala cacao and turning it into finished chocolate in India it's it's super exciting it almost feels like um, I don't know full circle in a sense right like I'm half Swiss half Indian and I trained in science and I'm in chocolate how does that make any sense and I'm like oh it totally makes sense <laughs> you know India's growing cacao now and it's like a normal place for it to grow a normal environment not that it's originally from there um, right Yes, yes, some exciting new origins. It's hard with Arate because they have so many origins and they're playing so much with trying to learn as much as they can from different origins and how to, you know, figure out how to roast different origins and how to bring out the best that we're almost like, oh gosh, too many origins. We don't, we want to carry them all, but then literally there's, I feel like we have maybe eight different origins just in the dark line of Arate and we're not Mm -hmm. even carrying them all because it's almost too much to to have them all and to have them in you know with deep inventory so um i definitely let it be known that i would really really dig tasting and um and carrying the india (laughs) so you alluded to at 
uh, last show that you were wanting to talk about uh, the the model, right? Model of the price somebody would pay for chocolate, right? And how that how the the two marry themselves or create an experience for one. Correct? Is that isn't that where we were? Yeah, yeah. It was fresh on my mind last week because. Um, on Wednesday, and we speak on Thursdays, but last week was Friday. Um, on Wednesday, I had been out to Berkeley, to UC Berkeley, to talk to a group of engineering students, so a variety, different background engineering students who were all taking a class on sustainable design. And the the professor who was teaching it had asked me to come in and, and often has me come in to speak to his different engineering classes with an eye on this idea of sustainability and, you know, building thoughtful business models, that sort of thing. And so this was the first time it was specifically a sustainable design class. And so I went into the class and thought, how fun to pose a problem to them. Like, you know, how do you do this when, when the world, you know, 10 years ago knew only a buck or two per bar, you know, one buck chocolate bar, not one buck chuck or two buck chuck, but like basically, you know, paying very little for a chocolate slash candy bar. How do you start to propose a different, um, a different category? How do you start to get people to engage with um, a, a different quality, a higher percentage, a not even just a higher percentage, because lint seventy percent was widely available for a long time. How do you get people to? Um, dig deeper into that and see that there's a lot of complexity of flavor. There's a lot of, you know, really careful work that's going on. How do you engage people around that and, and in a sense, convince um, people to spend more on chocolate and feel good about it and appreciate it and value it. And so I threw that out to them after doing a tasting. So we first put out four different uh, no, it wasn't four. I can't remember now how many we did. Um, two or three different plain darks, just to have them taste like how different two dark chocolates in the same percentage range, 70s or so, um, can taste. So that that just opened their minds to that, and it was really neat to see them without really trying to bring them anywhere. Just sort of saying, "Look, I'm going to talk to you the way I talk to my customers. I'm just going to tell you the basics about this bar. T- two ingredients, 70 percent. The beans are from here. This is how it was made. Whatever." You know, I just sort of talked beyond them in a sense because they had no chocolate understanding and then put the bars out for them to taste and people were you know they could taste quality you know they 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 definitely were like wow this is the best chocolate i've ever tasted and i think we did i want to say we did the janduya no we did a dark milk i think by arate as well and they were completely blown away by that as well and so after they had tasted the chocolate i asked them a bunch of questions you know so how much do you normally spend on a bar Um, what's the cap, you know, and they were like, never more than 10. And um, they answered a bunch of things. And then I posed this problem of, you know, how do you start to get people to um, understand the value of something like this? And I told them the prices of the bars and, and they started throwing ideas at me of, you know, how you change the conversation and get people to look at in a new way. Um, So I can, I can kind of go through that. Um, And in in a sense, it was an interesting, um, an interesting challenge to see like how much that they bring up are we already doing hey do I get some new ideas about how to you know shift the value proposition and 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 engage people further and um, and so yeah I can uh, I can go into some of what they proposed if I can remember all of it and then tell you how that translates to the experience that we create in the garage um, if that makes sense but I'm curious if you have any 
thoughts and if it's something that you've given some thought to you know because you obviously are a convert you spend money on chocolate and you have probably maybe talk about like how your appreciation for chocolate has changed and what was it for you that shifted you from eating you know much different stuff I imagine 10 years ago to what you're eating these days it's been an interesting transition and I and I find myself probably a little different than some other people but I probably align myself with some others too so I've I've always sort of been one to either align with brands that uh, they do well by their customers or have good standards or just a product that I appreciate I did this when I was playing music so if there is a uh, a guy who, let's say, hand-wound his own guitar strings and had a particular sound that I went with, and I would, I'd always buy those. I would find certain guitar effects pedal companies and ones that I, they seem to always have a little something extra there, you know, that I would follow their line of stuff. And uh, going into coffee as well, that actually coffee was slightly different because when I first took the jump into coffee, I knew the price of what it is at the grocery store, and I understood that coffee was better, but I I couldn't really put a, a price on it, really. I, I would just go with whatever I'm kind of told that price is, as long as it doesn't seem outlandish, which it didn't. It was a little bit more than what you'd get at the store, but it it sort of made sense, right? I mean, I'm not talking necessarily above $20 for a bag of coffee. You break that down to how much per cup. Those numbers all kind of made sense to me anyway when I think about it that way. But uh, that kind of just grew. So going from kind of being into a coffee circle into a chocolate circle, it was sort of the same thing and then also pulling back from some of those previous experiences before. I understand that if there is a product that's good, I, I sort of separate myself from the cost of that because the product is good and the hardest thing for me is that and the reason it's hard is because it always somehow gets tangled up in marketing these days it's hard for me to always say that because the reason is there or because the quote-unquote mission is there that it's worth the price that it is because i know a lot of people they throw on fair trade or direct trade, or certified organic, some of these things that don't necessarily mean as much anymore, or they did, or you'd have to dig in further because there's workarounds. It only has to be X percent of it to be this. And, you know, being in a fast-paced society, I personally don't look into all of that. So uh, very long-winded answer, but I, it's a little of all of those elements and understanding from the coffee side first how it trickles back and all the steps that it goes back through for the farmer. It was sort of an easy transition to see a value that would be there in regards to chocolate as well. And I think at least kind of when I came in, there was already, I mean... Let me try and figure out what some of the bigger, I mean, Mast Brothers was around and it was just kind of, here's a price and you could, you know, 
base something around that if you wanted to. Um, I never really cared for their chocolate. I have not, I don't, I've never really got a whole lot of their bars. Um, but again, I, it was, it was something that was just there and it was in the eye and prices sort of reflected around that. And then to me, again, as someone who likes to explore flavor and nuance, it's sort of hard to describe that. Let me go, let me go back to this and this may or may not make sense. But when I was playing guitar, there are a lot of different amps, guitar amps that I would play on. And then I came across one amp and all of a sudden the sound of the guitar just seemed to take it one extra dimension, if you will. So, and I'm not talking out of space dimension. It just seemed like there was uh, a more three-dimensional sound than what you would normally hear. There was a, there were dynamics and a fullness that I didn't experience in other things. And I find that same sort of thing with flavor. And so if a coffee or a chocolate has this opening where there's a lot of complexity and there's nuance and there's depth and chocolate more so than coffee because I feel like there is a weightiness that you get. Well, I don't feel like there is. There's a weightiness that you get when eating chocolate that you don't necessarily find in drinking a liquid. And for that, that again, combined with everything else that I mentioned, it, it sort of just put a bunch of pieces together for me. Got it. So it, it, you came from a place where you had already been, um, if not intellectually researching, sort of experiencing um, items or products that were, you know, on a different level in terms of quality. Um, beyond even coffee, just when you're talking about music, you'd already, you understood that at some point you're talking about something that's almost like a, its own category within, you know, um, guitar strings or an amp. Um, and then when you experience that, then you understand that, wow, this is just something that's totally different. And so the price, um, not that you don't consider it, but suddenly, you know, you've experienced something different. And so you want that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. So, hmm. so, so my journey, I think it, it makes sense to talk about this my journey into chocolate came from a place of, so my background is I'm a molecular biologist. I used to study different diseases. One was uh, childhood kidney cancer back in Montreal. And then I moved to the Bay Area and, and then found another job here studying prion disease, which is the, the protein that causes the uh, human form of mad cow's disease called Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. And so, you know, that has nothing to do with chocolate. Um, I've, I've been moving away from science all these years and coming more and more towards working with people. And so the, the last job I had at UCSF was very satisfying in that sense that I was working directly with human beings. I was um, both on the level of the team that I was working with of different scientists and, and doctors um, to, 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 to have this study work and bring together people who had this disease, and then also working directly with patients and their families. So it was a deeply rewarding and um, challenging and an amazing experience to work with all these people. And yet it was a disease that affected so few people. It's a, it's a very um, interesting intellectually and scientifically disease to study. Um, and it doesn't affect a lot of folks. And so on the weekends, I would find myself reading up on things like fair trade and sustainability, like sustainable development and poverty. And like, how do you, how do you change these sort of 
these these communities that have so few opportunities how do you get them into position or how do they get themselves into a position where they can lift themselves out of poverty so these were things that I was curious about on weekends and so when I eventually left UCSF and left science I didn't I guess I didn't know I was leaving science but um, I I started to explore that more deeply and go to conferences about these sorts of things you know like green conferences sustainable development conferences and then discovered chocolate through that route and and in doing so came to see an opportunity for cacao to lift up communities and um, saw it happening in Ecuador and thought gosh you know when you when you improve the quality um, of production and that could be maybe just through little things like pruning but also definitely centralized fermentation or or experience and understanding on how to ferment and dry and make a higher quality product um, then you put folks in a position to be able to get a better price for their cacao and so that's the angle I came in through not so much um, oh my god I tasted this bar and it totally blew me away so this was 13 years ago so there weren't that many bars yet at that time that were the kind of caliber that we have these days so my entry was like oh look you know you can have something that is going to create change and that you can inspire people with and and honestly at that time it felt and this was why for me this idea of happy chocolate became it was so critical that it have two components to it because I remember reading this story about um, I don't know if I told this story already with you or if it was um, off, you know, not recording on a podcast, but divine chocolate, you know, taste. Did we talk about that? Yeah, I think we talked about that uh, one or two episodes ago. Yeah, so coming to find bars that were had these wonderful business models that were so inspiring and radically different from classic business models and then not wanting to eat the chocolate because it wasn't actually very good. It was much more on the side of the story and and not you know, not having a matching quality. And so feeling like happy chocolate needs to be really high quality so people will buy it because it is delicious and because it is beyond anything else they know and making sure that when that's the case that also there is the integrity in the supply chain from the farmer to the maker to, you know, everything, the, the distributor even. Um, and so coming from that angle, um, and and then opening up a store so initially I didn't have a store I did tastings and I didn't sell the chocolate and then eventually you know a, a store came into my life meaning like a little old garage came into my life that um, was part of a larger space that was being rented and I had access to it and so um, tried to create this space where I could further engage people continue to do tastings not have to tell them yeah I'll do a tasting for you um, how's your living room <laughs> actually have a place where I could host people to do tastings and then carry the bars that I that I was um, using at the tastings and so that's that's the angle that I came at or came with and so from the beginning there's always been this element of this is like it's kind of activist chocolate in a sense you know like you can you can eat really really delicious chocolate the best stuff that's out there and by the way it is intact in terms of the integrity and how it's being done and it's part of creating a new market that could potentially shift things more towards showing that there's value in the human beings who are doing the picking and the processing rather than what the current system is is that they're commodities um, and so with that in mind trying to figure out how to create a space that would do that so obviously our focus was tasting if you're going to taste you you don't want to be just standing there in a store full of shelves 
um, like awkwardly tasting chocolate. So we had a couch and really like a couple of couches and cozy places to sit and then a bench and and a a table in the center of it all. It's a tiny space, which I realize in in many ways, um, in retrospect, looking back, that it was, that's actually great because it forces intimacy. It forces a smallness to the experience where people have to connect with each other and engage and and listen and share. So, um, So we created this space that was basically a tasting room that had chocolate for sale as well but it was that's not the focus when you walked in and um, I think that element of people walking into a space that feels um, I mean it was definitely Craigslist populated the furniture everything was like bought used and sort of hacked together together on a really low budget with um, the help of a dear friend of mine who was an interior designer who had an eye to pull together eclectic and make it work and so I think that 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 first element of you walk in and you're like, this is not a normal store. Even if you don't know that actually, you know, if you had not come on a Wednesday night, we would have been closed and we're not a normal store in that sense. Um, It's not a normal store in the way that it's set up. Um, So I think that that was one of the elements, I think, in retrospect that sort of changed people's expectations or opened them up to something different as soon as they walked in. Um, The next and please interrupt me and ask me questions because it's like, it's it's a funny thing because a lot of this was very intuitive. Um, I don't know if you have listened to the talk by Simon Sinek when he talks about, um, it's kind of a famous TED talk, TEDx talk, and he talks about like most people know what they do and a lot of people know how they do it. This is businesses, but very few people know why they're doing something. And when you know the why, then it really informs the what and the how. Do you know what talk I'm talking about? I don't, but now I'm going to have to go find that. It's, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's interesting. And he talks, he gives examples about Apple. You know, what is Apple? Why? Like, what is the why behind Apple? And um, for myself, I think that a lot of this is after the fact, looking back and realizing, oh gosh, you know, this actually was really helpful. Like the fact that we're only open on Saturday mornings, why? So when I started this, you know, the chocolate garage and had had been doing tastings for many years already. But when I started the garage, I had a four month old and a two year old. And so, um, you know, that is a big constraint. And so um, we were on a tiny little street in a little garage that's tucked away that no one really knew existed. And we were across the street from a farmer's market, which is why we ended up going with this space because once a week on Saturdays, it was crawling with people who care about finding quality and are ready to pay more for a quality product and are ready to do that because of a relationship they're building with the farmer and that they have with the farmer. So it seemed like the perfect demographic. So that explains why Saturday mornings at the beginning was the only day we were ever open. We've since started opening on Wednesdays, um, but initially it was just Saturdays. So one of the, that was an obvious thing to do given my context of having two small children. But it turns out that community is a really, really important element of the chocolate garage. And, you know, probably going forward, you know, more and more important to our human lives, to feeling connected and to, to, to feeling um, not apathetic and, and engaged with our lives and our communities. And so it turns out that being open only on Saturday mornings actually forces community. It forces, there's only this window once a week where you can come in and so you're going to bump into people literally <laughs> um, in the tiny garage as you wait patiently to get checked out. Um, but you're going to bump into people again and again and it, it, it was one of the, the farmer's market to me is one of the few remaining 
rituals that there is in in our community in Palo Alto where people come together and bump into each other and are in this place I realized afterwards of leisure right when you're running an errand and you're going to a shop on a weekday or even even maybe on the weekend sometimes like you're you have a mission and you go and you do it and you leave whereas the farmers market people come to with the expectation and the understanding that they don't know exactly how long they'll be there because they know they're going to bump into people and it's a Saturday morning and there's prepared food and you go buy your veggies and you wander and you linger and you know that um, mindset and frame I did not realize but I realize now is also really really critical and helpful to the success of the chocolate garage because people meander in and they're like oh what a delightful surprise and they're met with Oh, you know, for the first five years, we did this all for free where people would walk in and we'd have six different chocolates out on the table for people to taste. So the element of I'm walking in, I'm in this nice mind space because it's Saturday morning. I'm seeing friends and oh, my friend just told me you've got to go check out the chocolate garage. It's amazing. Go talk to Sunita, blah, blah, blah. She knows so much. So people walk in and they come in and they, they're asked to sit or they, they decide to sit or they see someone on the couch they know. They sit, they taste. All of a sudden people are, you know, for really busy, they, they are actually helping each other through the chocolates and understanding, you know, what, you know, you got to taste this one. It's amazing kind of thing. Um, so it, it, it creates this space where you walk in and you feel like it's a place of generosity and like, sounds so California abundance and like warmth and people are welcomed in and are tasting chocolate and I am like this enthusiastic person who's like oh if you like that one you got to taste this this is amazing it's my new favorite right so all of that experience so far is not about money and in a sense of course it's about money like I've just put hundreds of dollars of chocolate out on a table for five hours that is the most expensive chocolate you're going to find but I also understand that unless you get it in people's mouths and they taste it and they're transformed by it, it's a big deal to suddenly be looking at the price tag of back then, you know, seven, eight, nine dollars for a chocolate bar. That seems like madness, right? And so removing the element of the financial and actually creating a space where people feel like this is about relationships, this is about transparency and trust and integrity and honesty and it's why it's really important that the people who work at the chocolate garage who originally was just me and Zaina who joined me have those elements who are you know can answer questions in a really thorough way an honest way and and go deep and not know sometimes and be truthful about that and find the answers and provide them to customers and so I think that element is like one of the key critical things that is really difficult to do um, but is was really key at that early time seven years ago to starting to get people to come in and taste and take the risk and and buy buy the chocolates that they were tasting that they really loved. And I think that's one of the interesting parts and I think it also plays into why we get along so well is because I I had mentioned the marketing aspect of this and I, and it's m- not that it hasn't always been there, but I know that it's a little bit more aggressive now. And so that's a big challenge for, I would think, someone in the place of like the a chocolate garage. But the only thing that's going to, to me, to separate that and then to be able to kind of continue through that thread is um, sincerity and um, what's the, the right word I'm looking for? Um, being trustworthy, right? Being um, transparent, and so, 
And so it's kind of a combination of both those because where where I see some people pitching um, those terms that I was mentioning, direct trade and stuff, gimmicky to try and bait you into buying. And that's where it's difficult because you hear some of the same language, but you're able to back that up. And so there's rapport that's building there. And so so your target audience is is a me, right? And my my target like uh, company or 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 someone to learn from and support is you. And so that's it's we're both in there. And so I and so that's what what's what I mentioned when I we met at Northwest too. And when I suggested that you have a podcast where you're able to talk more, is because I I believe what you say and I understand the the real desire that's behind your passion for it as opposed to it just being something that's chalked up to marketing or something like that and so in a way both of our directions that are very different very much um meet right in the middle yeah and you know i think it's interesting because this is the harder path in many ways you know like the world is a big gray area and it's it's not black and white it's not there aren't a lot of easy answers and you know i i, ref- I say that a lot in the cuba documentary we did because it's just like such an exaggeration of the complicate you know complications of of the political system and people trying to make a living and all that kind of stuff but you know even in chocolate it's like people come in and like oh okay so they hear my spiel and they're like so oh so this is all fair trade chocolate no, it's not. Actually, almost none of this is fair trade. This is beyond fair trade in many ways. And then it's, you know, a three-minute explanation of what that is. And again and again and again, and helping people understand and, you know, recognizing what fair trade has done and what it's not doing and why this is different and why we stand behind this. Because, you know, I've gone from feeling like third-party certification was absolutely important, like 13 years ago when I first started, to understanding some of the complexities there and realizing that it's not addressing many of the things that I'd like to see addressed. And so taking on that, I want to strip away the marketing and the packaging and get to know the makers really well and listen and learn from them and see what they are doing. And, and you know, on the chocolate level, but also just also sniffing out like any inconsistencies and little red flags. And then, and, and this is the hard thing. And sometimes um, I'm not sure that I am able to really effectively communicate this because there's also there's also discretion. You know, I know that I'm applying a filter that is um, is pretty hardcore, and it's a filter that is what resonates for me and feels good for me. It's not anything else that's defined outside. And sometimes, like I feel, you know, I, I struggle with this. I'm like, Sunita, are you being too picky here? Like, you know, should you just chill a little bit, or or is this something that you really feel uncomfortable with, or, or doesn't work? And and um, typically when I when I try to chill I realize that that's actually you know not what I need to do I mean this is I want to to on a quality level and also on integrity level I want to stand by stuff that I'm really excited about every aspect of it of the people involved in and everything and so um that you know that is probably not the best business decision in maybe in the short term or like a peer MBA person come in and be like, well, that's silly, you know, you should sell what's the most popular. But I believe in the long term, especially because I am dealing with people like you who are about the gray area, who want to go deeper and dig and ask questions. And over time, depending on my answers and how I behave and how I answer your questions, we build trust. And I think that is a, it's not a short term thing. It really is a long term thing, which means you have to be patient, but it does bear fruit 
down the line. And um, I'm definitely not in this for the short term. Um, and so I think that, that that really matters and is really important. And one of the areas where this is hard is that the discretion part, right? So I find out things sometimes through various colleagues and people in the industry that are kind of sketchy. And I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, that does not work for me. And this seems like it's reliable from people I trust from various different sources. And I'm going to need to stop carrying this particular brand, you know, and, and then like people come in and like, Oh, where's this bar? I love it. And I'm like, yeah, we don't carry it anymore. And, and I can't always say exactly why, like some of the time, you know, Mass Brothers is a great example. They're like, have you heard of Mass Brothers? Yes, I have. What, you know, well, do you carry them? No, they're not happy chocolate. And that's an easy answer that, that puts a, a vague bandaid on, <laughs> on it. But, you know, I, I, I would say, look, you know, I've tasted their stuff. I taste it regularly. It's very inconsistent. It doesn't, you know, it just doesn't meet our quality standards. And I would leave it at that, even though I had known, and a lot of us knew within the industry, like all of these kind of maybe dubious beginnings that there were um, around how they tested the market early on to figure out, you know, whether there was something there. And then they decided to start making their bean-to-bar chocolate. And so I knew that, but I couldn't say it um, because it's kind of hearsay. And then thankfully, Scott put his four-part series out eventually when he got fed up of the growing embellishments of the starting story and and what their whole brand was about um but a lot of times it's just you know we don't carry it anymore and i and i don't it, it's a delicate line because i want to be totally open and honest but some of it is a quite like the information comes accidentally and and then i have this new little bit of information i don't want to bad mouth necessarily or like hurt a company um you know, and that's an interesting thing too. Like, why not just put it out there? I guess there's just a line you need to walk where, you, you know, by standing with what you believe in and carrying that and then speaking only of things that you really truly know that are your experience that you've experienced directly, then I can be clean about what I do say and stuff that's more hearsay or that I, I believe is true and I'm concerned about, I can step away from without having to give the whole story behind it. Um, yeah. So I guess it kind of leaves with a question of what do we want the end user or consumer, however you want to call it, what do we want them to understand from this? Because there are people who who think financially and there'll be people who just they don't understand the system or it's going to take more time to understand why the cost is there, that it's there, or they don't particularly care about the cause, the value in the back end. So it, what what sort of expectation should be there in in coming in to know more about, you know, all of this chocolate as it is, craft chocolate, if you will, whatever you want to call it, happy chocolate. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I think so. I mean, um, I, I, I think I've understood what you're asking. And I feel like, you know, we have people who come in who will complain about the price or be shocked and say that that's just too expensive. And, you know, in part, that's why we don't actually, the only marketing we do is we go out and do team buildings and we do tastings and we, we, we force through our, our structure a learning and a tasting so there's a higher chance of transformation and understanding we don't like to do passive tastings um, because 
people don't like they'll eat it and be like oh yum yum but they won't have any sense of like just how yum and how hard it was to make that yum (laughs) um and so we try you know in a sense again like this was accidental but being open very rarely is an is an automatic filter for who comes to the chocolate garage you're not going to get the timing right and unless you organize your life a little bit around around when we're open and so and the fact we're not on university ave which is like the main street in palo alto and we're off on this little street tucked away turns out is also another filter so we end up getting people who really are intense about chocolate and want to learn and want the gray and then once they've taken the time and are ready to invest some of their time to understand the gray then they're also those kinds of folks who are like okay i get it and this is a different thing and i i want to get behind this and i want to be part of this and so you know in a sense we don't want we don't want um the average person that when you say this is something that is really um I don't know kind of one of my pet peeves is this like this fluffy like ooh, you know stuff your face with chocolate kind of attitude like when you say chocolate everyone's gaga and you know and that there's no there's just this like guilty pleasure hedonism behind it you know and i'm 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 a pretty big i love to eat i'm not saying there's anything wrong with enjoying pleasure but um there's something about that like when you say something about chocolate most people that's you know that's where they're at and like we don't actually want those folks necessarily who want to come in and just stuff their faces and are about you know that kind of thoughtless pleasure um so i would say that when those people accidentally stumble into the garage and have an issue with the price i used to get upset and offended and like i need to convince these people and you know to understand why it's so much more expensive and this is not a ripoff you know um and now I kind of I'm just like, you know, yeah, if it's I get it. If this is too expensive and this is something you want to buy once a year because it's a real special occasion and the rest of the time you want to stick to, you know, something else you can find at Whole Foods that's cheaper that maybe has a certification on it that you feel good about, that's fine, you know. You should you should go do that. We're not the right store for you. I don't want to battle people and convince them that, you know, on so many levels, you know, whether it be you eat this differently. You eat it more slowly. You have more enjoyment. You know that this is what the supply chain looked like. I can tell you about, you know, um, Bertil, who grew this, you know, whose who's, uh, farmers and folks who work for him grew this cacao and harvested it and did all this. Like, I can tell you pretty much everything about this bar and the people involved and their quirks and all of that. So you can know what you're eating. Like, um, all of that, you know, like, I don't really want to work too hard trying to convince people that that matters because we all have different relationships with money and what we value and so you know at the end of the day it feels like i just want to continue getting better at telling the story and doing it beyond in person at the garage and creating these little documentaries where we can highlight hey here's a really cool model where they're doing value add in country why does that matter here's why and here are some people speaking to that and just growing it that way so that over time as people get more interested and maybe you know i think in some ways what's needed is um, people being jolted into awareness of just how horrific the current situation is for folks who grow cacao and and sell it on the commodity market Um, maybe then you know more and more interest comes and people then have material to 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 look at and to learn from and then to decide whether that is meaningful to them and they want to change their purchasing habits so i don't know if that answers your question but 
I, Absolutely, it does. I think that that realizing in retrospect that, that that's a more powerful place to stand than than trying to convince. And I have tried to do a lot of convincing over the years. I've probably been pretty annoying. Um, I've tried to, you know, we've tried this model where people have prepaid tabs, um, where they put money down, and that's how we crowdfund these bars and get bars like The Boss or various bars from Rogue over the years and um, all these different bars that we carry that are exclusive to the garage, most recently the Charm School, um, Camino Verde, one with Nibs. So, you know, that's a model that really worked, but I I realized it wasn't sustainable in the long, long term as rents go up and costs go up and labor costs go up. And so I tried another model that was membership. And, you know, I, I can't say it failed miserably. I did terminate the program. We needed, you know, five to 800 people for it to be something that could stick, who would pay monthly to then access the chocolate basically at cost, but to commit um, to a connection to the garage that took care of our overhead. So it was a model, I think, that you know, it's nice to, I'd like to think it was ahead of its time. Maybe it was just wrong altogether. But, you know, and I worked so hard to try to convince people and I didn't, I got like 250 people on board and that did not, you know, it was a pure financial calculation for people, for most people, not all. And, and it didn't work. So I let it go and now I'm trying other things, but, um, pushing hard to try to convince people from a place of like frustration is really not, it's not a good way to spend your life, um, and it's not very effective either. So, I think in general, what's been really interesting, and I think now I do more of this, was back then, not think so much about the the pragmatics of it and the the really obsessing about what the cost is to you, but realize you need to create a space where people can experience something different and you lower their risk to buy. So once people have fallen totally in love with a bar that you're featuring that weekend and they love it, then all of a sudden it's like they're behaving with their heart and their palate and their emotions, not with their intellectual mind of like oh gosh it's you know it's a $15 bar it's like there's no risk you know you love it and now you're gonna buy it and now that you've bought it you're gonna actually eat it differently um, and that's not something that you have to teach I think people just they get it intrinsically and so I think that I think more and more um, folks are coming to value quality and slowing down and tasting and appreciating quality over quantity 